morning. Thanks for morning. Thank you. Good morning, Susie. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is uh, October 23rd, 2019. And we, um, we are coming off a successful chat here. I don't have the final tallies, but I uh, appreciated seeing many of you on the green on Sunday. We have uh, busy times. We have tonight for the professional staff, the annual professional staff meeting in Auditorium H uh, down the hall with uh, Drs. Merrins, Conroy, and others. So hopefully see some of you there. And um, on Monday, November 4th, we'll have an all uh, DHH-wide um, State of the State of the System Town Hall by Joanne Conroy. Um, most importantly, about eight days, you have to have your flu shots documented between now and November first. So please uh, attend to that, and um, and we'll keep we'll keep the ball rolling. So this morning, it's a it's a real pleasure to to welcome Susan Denser, not Dr. Susan Denser, although she is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. So whether or not the MD degree has come, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. There's, this is a health expert who is also a, um, a Dartmouth alum. So welcome home for for Susan, who is actually in the same graduating class as Joanne Conroy. But uh, from her from her bio, Susan Denser is one of the nation's most respected health and policy health and health policy thought leaders, and a frequent speaker and commentator on TV and radio, including PBS and NPR, an author of commentaries and analyses in print publications such as Modern Healthcare, the Annals of Internal Medicine, and the New England Journal of Medicine, and New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst. She is also editor and lead author of the book Healthcare Without Walls, which you see the title of today, A Roadmap for Reinventing U.S. Healthcare, which is available like everything on Amazon.com. She is currently a visiting fellow at the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy, which is in Washington, D.C. It's the arm of Duke University that focuses on health system transformation, biopharmaceutical policy, and other key health policy issues. She focuses on research and thought leadership for modernizing the healthcare system through the use of greater virtual care and a reconfigured healthcare workforce, improving health and healthcare in rural areas, anticipating a future of effective treatments of Alzheimer's and other dementias, and other topics. From 2016 to 2019, uh, Ms. Denzer was President and Chief Executive Officer of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization of more than 80 stakeholders from all across key sectors of health and healthcare. Prior to that, she was Senior Policy Advisor to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in the United States, and before that was Editor-in-Chief of the policy journal Health Affairs. You may remember her from 1998 to 2008 on-air health correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and the leader of their health policy unit, and she wrote and hosted a 2015 PBS documentary, Reinventing American Healthcare. As I mentioned, she's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and also serves on the Board of Population Health and Public Health Practice of the National Academies of Science medicine and engineering. She is a trustee emerita of Dartmouth College, having been the chair of the Board of Trustees from 2001 to 2004, the first woman to so serve in that role. She just completed more than two decades of service on the um, Geisel, Dartmouth and Geisel School of Medicine Board of Advisors. So that in and of itself should qualify for an honorary medical degree, but she does hold an honorary master's in addition to her undergrad from Dartmouth and an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Muskingum University. She has three grown children, two of whom are either at Dartmouth or graduated. So this is very much home. She actually is also leading, help leading Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock's Center for Global Health Equity Initiative. So we'll continue to be on campus and hopefully this will be stimulating enough that we'll invite her back. I'll challenge us to uh, think very 
specifically about how these um, giant movements impact our very much our own practice and what we can do with it. And Susan will challenge us to make your questions and observations in the moment. Don't wait until the end for a Q&A period. Make it an active session. So Susan Benser, welcome. It's great to be back uh, in the area, as it always is, and it's great to be here with you this morning. And as you heard from Keith, uh, a lot of this work is based on uh, some work I did in my prior life, which is running this uh, small nonprofit that was trying to foster uh, innovation in healthcare. So let me give you a quick sense of what that was about. Here's a copy of the book. Um, I'll tell you about the vision that we had in mind as we were doing this work. Uh, I'm going to talk about the here and the now of healthcare as we see it in the context of the trends I'm going to talk about, but also very importantly, what we think is coming in the future. And then really importantly, the opportunities and challenges for pediatrics in particular in this new world. And as he said, please, let's keep this interactive. So if you have a question, comment, I'll throw something at me. Let's do it in the moment, rather. And if I get through all of this presentation or just four slides, it doesn't matter to me. I'm happy to leave the deck with all of you. Uh, and we'll just have a good uh, discussion for the next hour. So at um, the organization I was leading, we found it very useful as we thought about innovation in healthcare to go back time and again and ask some of the big, obvious questions about health and healthcare. And we claim no originality in any of these because these questions have been asked time and again by many people over many decades. So what are some of the big questions we ask? First of all, what if instead of what we have, which is still largely a sick care system, even though we call it a health care system, what if we had more of a health-inducing system than we have now, number one, and also a system that went more to people rather than expecting people to come to it. As we know, healthcare still is kind of organized around institutions of various sorts, of this being the case in point, physicians' offices, etc. And we know that the world is changing in terms of where we're able to access various things. So how can healthcare has lagged that process? And in particular, we asked, there are lots of aspects of healthcare that clearly involve laying on I get back on I-89 on my way home today and get in a terrible car accident, I'm going to want somebody to bring me back here, right? I'm not going to expect a telehealth visit with a doctor. <laughs> that we know. Uh, so there's a lot of healthcare that's like that. But there's a whole lot of healthcare that is about exchanges of information. Now, what are your symptoms? How long have you had them? How are you responding to the medication, et cetera? That doesn't really so much require individuals to be in the same room together. However, in healthcare, it pretty much still does. Not exclusively, but to a large degree. And even as we think about the way we live the rest of our lives, which is increasingly virtually, some of you are watching this virtually today, probably outnumbering the people who are actually in the room. We're very comfortable with that. How come in healthcare we still pretty much insist that those exchanges of information take place face to face? That was an obvious question that we asked. Uh, so if we leave aside all the laying on the hands part, 
what could we do with the exchange of information part to really make it virtual, not for the sake of it being virtual, because that's not the point. The point is basically doing it in a way that is more oriented around the patient. And as a friend of mine, Mark Fendrick, puts it, as healthcare gets more and more sophisticated in terms of a science, how come we are still delivering, as he puts it, Star Wars medicine on a Flintstones delivery platform? Really, that was the fundamental question that we had. So, uh, speaking of uh, the fact that innovation often takes a long time, think about some of the earliest uh, aspects of telehealth in this country. Some of it goes back to, essentially, the 1960s. Uh, this is a case in point. This is an obituary that appeared in the New York Times back in the 90s about Ken Bird, who goes, started off at Leahy Clinic, but then went on to Mass General, started one of the first, one of the first telehealth systems in the country, seeing patients at Boston Logan Airport from Mass General with the aid of this very sophisticated black and white technology that you see there in the 1960s. We start, they restarted that back in the 60s, and essentially it lived for several years until he retired, and then the institution kind of lost interest in upholding it. So it's not like these notions of doing things virtually are new. They are old. It's just that they never really took root. And so when we thought about that, we thought, well, we should at least advance from the Flintstones to the Jetsons in 1962. And you can see in 1962, this is how the animators of Jetsons thought we would be seeing doctors in the future, right? So uh, right there, case in point, in the 60s, people were thinking along these lines. I wrote more about this in a major catalyst piece, uh, but if you're interested in some more of that analysis, uh, you can look that one up. So we asked, therefore, so why is healthcare increasingly still within the walls? It should, I should say, still within the walls, but it should be increasingly focused outside the walls. That really was the fundamental question. And we know there are lots of reasons why you would want to focus outside the walls, one of which is that we know that health is basically created outside of the healthcare system, by and large. We know that the U.S. is a far less healthy nation than any of our uh, high-income peer countries by far. We have big disparities in life expectancy within the population that basically start at birth or probably before birth, given what we know now about uh, fetal development and uh, genetic history and all of that. Uh, we know that the U.S. is now in its third year of declining overall life expectancy as a country because the poor health of much of the population and, and deaths from opioid use disorder and others are pulling the average way down. And we know that the poor and declining health status of Americans really underscores the need to go back and address the underlying social determinants of health, which are the primary drivers of our health status. And where are we going to do that? Are we going to do that within healthcare institutions or are we going to do that out in communities focused on how people are living their lives really becomes the question. Um, you all have seen variations of this, these charts probably many times, but we know on average, if we ask what really drives our, our health status in life, we know in this pie chart on the left, it's a lot of it is the social and economic factors. It is the social determinants of health. It's levels of income. It's levels of education. Those are the primary 
drivers of health status in life. Health behaviors obviously play a big role. Surprisingly, all of that, it plays a lot bigger role than genes and biology do. Physical environment plays a role. Are you living next to a toxic waste dump? Uh, is your school located next to a busy, polluting highway? All of that matters. And clinical care is 10%. Maybe some people say maybe it's 20% of the equation, but it's not 60% or 80% of the equation. So if that's the case, why are we thinking that we're going to address all of health in the healthcare system? We know that we're going to have to take into account all of these things on the pie chart on the right, the, the safety of the environment, hunger and food security or insecurity, et cetera, et cetera, education levels. Those are going to matter much more in the end in terms of health status. So how come we have the system organized the way it is? And as we know, most of our resources in this country are going into the healthcare setting they're not going into more of these upstream drivers of health, by and large. So we know all of that. We also know that care itself in the healthcare context is slowly moving out of inpatient settings. It may not always seem that way, especially here, where the need is so intense that a new tower is going to go up. But by and large, if we look across the country, we see that the revenues pretty much as of 2017 we're almost commensurate on the outpatient side as, as on the inpatient side, and by now they have the clips. The outpatient revenues are greater than inpatient revenues. So we know that it's even in the context of a healthcare institution, more care is moving out of the inpatient side. And we know that consumer preferences are changing. Uh, I just, just on my way in this morning, I was listening, there was a Vermont public radio piece about telemedicine and telehealth in Vermont. And 30% of Vermonters say that they didn't access health care last year, partly for affordability reasons and partly because they simply couldn't get to it. Well, as we get accustomed to other things coming to us, like everything that we buy on Amazon, people start to ask, well, why is health care any different? Um, and would we prefer a system of health care without walls to what we have today? Which, again, we, the expectation of people coming, sitting, waiting patiently or not so patiently uh, to be seen, let alone <coughs> make, uh, having to wait for weeks, months, whatever, to make an appointment. So as we asked all of this, we also started to think, well, who, if, the, if healthcare moved more outside the walls, who could it benefit? And we conjured up a bunch of different scenarios of <coughs> fictional patients, but based on realistic profiles of patients who we thought could benefit. And, and if you are so inclined to get the book, you'll see that we wrote these up in scenarios. I'll just focus on a couple of them that have pediatric implications in the interest of time today. So one of our profiles was the, a, a young boy with type 1 diabetes, a teenager, who's maybe a second generation immigrant kid, living with, trying to live his life as a normal teenager um, wanting very much to blend in and not be, in, in essence, really bogged down in his life by his diabetes. And we know that's hard enough as it is because having diabetes requires so many intentional acts on the part of the individual to stay healthy. Uh, it's a challenge for anybody, and particularly it would be for a teenager. So since we know we can do a lot now, we can 
insulin pumps are very sophisticated. We can do a lot of remote monitoring on smartphones and all that. How would you configure a system that is wrapped around him and enables him to lead his life in the community as much as possible without expectations that he's going to be coming in all the time for medical appointments? Wouldn't that be a good thing to try to drive for? Another example we came up with was a, a young child with multiple uh, physical and intellectual disabilities. Maybe his mom is a single mom. Maybe she's got other kids, too. She's working a not-so-well-paying job. Uh, if she has to take a day off to take her child to uh, specialist appointments, she's possibly losing a day of wages to do that. Let's say that he probably sees three or four different specialists. What if, instead of her trucking him around and her child around to all these appointments, what if they had a semi-monthly a video conference with all four specialists on the video conference at the same time, organized around the family, one setting, maybe it can, could even be done after normal work hours so she doesn't have to take a day off from work, and then basically deciding when he actually really needed to go someplace for a lab test or whatever and coordinating that together. Wouldn't that be a good thing? So, as I say, we just kind of came up over and over again with circumstances where a system that was more focused outside the walls and more focused around the patient and coordinated and made sensible use of technology um, was, why would that not be a good thing? So, as we asked that, we began to sort of scan the horizon, and we were very much reminded of this uh, statement by William Gibson, who's a science fiction writer. He's actually the guy who coined the term cyberspace. And he famously once wrote that the future has already arrived. It's just very unevenly distributed. And what is important about that statement is it captures the fact that usually you can find things that are going to become much more commonplace in the present, but they're just unevenly distributed. And if you can look at them and think, huh, these are things are happening already, what is going to happen when they really uh, move to scale? And so as we did that, uh, we started to look around at what is actually happening already that could be brought together and scaled up in an even greater way and have a greater impact. And that leads us to Let's look at what's going on today in telehealth and pediatrics. And as I say, just, just today, Vermont Public Radio story about telehealth going on here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and how that is helping to serve these Vermonters who don't have, uh, feel that they do not have adequate or timely access. Okay, so a lot of work has already been done in this sphere. I'm just going to mention this one article that was done. It's, it's actually a technical report that was done for the American Academy of Pediatrics to kind of do a taxonomy of the various different kinds of telehealth in pediatrics. And you can see the list here. There's the notion of teleeducation, one provider to another, through, for example, entities like Project ECHO. I'll say more about that in a moment. There's teleconsultation, which is communication links between doctors, you know, a pediatric specialist in one setting versus a general pediatrician in another. There's actual telepractice, where doctors are seeing patients via, via telehealth. There's teleresearch, which is basically disseminating uh, translational research, or even now increasingly conducting research virtually. You can think about the, all of us trial that NIH is doing, which is basically, a lot of it is essentially virtual. 
Um, so there are lots of different ways we could approach telehealth and pediatrics evidence and say that's a useful taxonomy. Um, there are also already guidelines that are forming about how to use telehealth uh, effectively in pediatrics, and this is uh, basically the American Telemed Association operating procedures for pediatric telehealth. So uh, number one being that uh, Basically, telehealth services should not be provided to kids under two years of age in their home or other non-clinical setting, except when their provider surrogate has a previously established in-person relationship with the patient. You know, so already people have said, you know, we, this is good, but we're, let's put some guardrails around it so that it is uh, done appropriately. Yeah, Keith. So I'm going to make sure that you get the interaction you're looking for today. So can you talk about maybe not right this moment, but leave it in. Are those guardrails set by the provider community or by the patient community? Because I also, on the previous slide, saw that caveat that telehealth is meant not to replace but to supplement. And I, yeah. I, is, is that sort of to make us feel comfortable that we still will be useful? Or, or, is, that coming, or is that coming from the patients? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both, really, realistically. If you look some of the polling, the survey that has been done about, about patients and patient preferences, there are generational differences in how old people are to engage. You know, my kids, if you told them you can go see somebody or you can FaceTime them, no question, they, they want to FaceTime you, right? But that's not the case with some older generations, so there's that difference on the patient <laughs> side. But I think on the provider side, you know, why wouldn't you think that there are going to be circumstances where you really do need to see the patient, right? And certainly starting out with a very young child, you don't want to have that first visit with a six-month-old baby be a telehealth visit, right, necessarily. So, so I, I think it's coming from both sides. And, and people feeling their way through this, right, more than anything else. So, so and, there, and if, if you're interested in this, th these are really interesting guidelines that they probe into other areas that are important to consider, like confidentiality and security and privacy, et cetera. Yeah. Can I add some complexities? <laughs> yes. I, I, in these conversations, we frequently focus on it being better for the patient, which of course is the ultimate goal. And I love the idea of saving patients a two-hour drive, especially in the winter. Yes. And so I've been doing the telepractice for four or five years. I don't do very many per year. But they, I always leave them feeling really unsatisfied as the human on this end of it. Yeah. Um, part of it is the camera. I think they see my face pretty large. But I see them from a camera across the room in the exam room, and I don't really get any read on their emotions. Uh, some body language, but it's a really different interaction for me, and it's um, so I think part of it is we, we have to think about keeping this job appealing. Yeah. And for me, thus far, it's really unsatisfying and not a human interaction. It's it's actually a telephone call is much more intimate and satisfying for me. Um, so I haven't gotten to the point where I like these yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you think about big systems where. Uh, a lot of this goes on already. Kaiser Permanente, 60% of visits in that system now are virtual. Um, so it's either uh, telehealth, it's uh, email, it's phone, etc. How does how does life be kept satisfying for those uh, docs in that system? They don't do it all the time. Right? They don't do it all the time. They balance it with a lot of time in clinic as well. 
so, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's, and figuring out, you know, e even things like, uh, there's a whole area of research now around so-called human factors, which is, um, you know, guess what, we're all human beings, and we relate to other people through our bodies, so there's a uh, real sense that even for a, a physician, unless you have you can let, literally lay hands on somebody, you can't quite comprehend what's going on with them. That's not to say it's the only way you could do that, but it's just, that's where, because that's how we're wired, right? We're human. So how, do, so how do you, okay, if you know that, can you compensate for that uh, at least part of the time and basically say, well, the trade-off is this person doesn't have to drive two right. hours to get to me, and I'll, I'll live with my frustration as a human being that I can't reach out and touch this person because this is better. Yeah. So it's kind of just thinking through those complexities, I think, that are, that is, is essentially, as the field is developing, that's the kind of thinking that's going on. I think it's important to remember, we, a lot of us do telehealth all the time. We talk on the telephone with our patients all the time, and we think about how does it fit in with the rest of what we provide. Um, and a lot of times that falls under the radar because we don't bill for it. Um, we will document it, but it doesn't get captured in larger systems. But, you know, we'll talk with families with kids under two all the time about whether they need to come in, whether they need to go to the emergency room um, at all hours. And that's telehealth. And, of course, none of us were in practice when the telephone was invented, but probably there were conversations back then about whether it was appropriate to even have those conversations on the phone, right? You have to imagine... That's probably what people thought at the time. So, as I say, we're kind of working our way through all of this. So, just to give some other examples of what's happening now in real time, is anybody familiar with Project Echo? Yeah, okay. So, and I think there has been a presence here, hasn't there? We're, we're launching a pediatric behavioral health Echo soon, but uh, yeah, that's. Yeah. So, Echo now. Uh, Frankly, it's close to meeting its target of touching a billion lives around the world because they have such a big footprint now in India and Africa, among other places. But uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is the super hub for the pediatric echo. And essentially, it's a way of doing provider, edu provider to provider education at scale via telemedicine and telehealth. And you can see the current. Uh, uh, AAP echoes in the, in various areas, very importantly op around opioid use disorder, <laughs> among other things. So that's just one aspect. You know, what what could possibly be wrong with this? Right, basically having people have access to the best knowledge and use the platform of uh, of telehealth. And by the way, when Project Echo got started uh, almost 15 years ago, because it was pretty primitive technology. Right? It was not even as advanced as Skype that people were using to try to communicate. Uh, initially, at that of the University of New Mexico, communicate uh, with providers in remote parts of New Mexico around how to treat patients with hepatitis C and other uh, liver disorders. So that's one example of what's happening already. Uh, many, many academic medical centers now have launched uh, direct telepractice programs. This is Stanford Children's Hospital, and you can see uh, basically they underscore even on what they, language they put on the website. These days it's hard to find someone who doesn't use digital health technology, especially if you're an academic medical center located in Silicon Valley. That's true. 
most of us go online to make appointments, access our medical <laughs> records. Many of us take advantage of remote virtual appointments. Okay, so they, this is the world that we live in, they're more or less saying, which is why they have online uh, 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 telehealth appointments that you can make through the MyChart portal. But they're obviously on Epic as well. Okay, in addition to that, they do online second opinion now. So if you're Concerned that maybe a diagnosis that you got from a general pediatrician, you really want to check that. You want to go to Stanford Children's Hospital, you can pay a $700 fee. Stanford collects all the medical records, does a review, then sends you a written second opinion, right? That's all virtual. What's wrong with that, right? That's a kind of a way of spreading the knowledge of, of, of the subspecialists specialists and subspecialists at Stanford to the rest of the community. Um, it'd be better if it didn't cost 700 bucks, but, you know, it's cheaper than flying to, if you're, let's say you're in Little Rock, Arkansas, or you'd rather do that than get on a plane and fly to, uh, to Palo Alto. Um, school telehealth is becoming much more prominent. This is uh, essentially out of uh, Children's Health of Dallas. This is... Uh, on an American, American Well is one of the big commercial providers of telehealth. They created a platform, as you can see there, where uh, essentially more than 100 schools across Texas are now linked in. Um, and essentially the, nur the nurses in schools are trained to assist patients in having telehealth visits back to specialists uh, at, uh, in Dallas. And essentially they, they're tracking this now, but they do really very strongly, they've managed to avoid ED visits, and obviously the patients can stay in communities. Obviously, Texas is a very large state, and if they you know, very large travel distances, this is obviously a, a very important capability. Um, some of this is actually now being studied. That was sort of more commercial uh, evidence, if you can call it that. But, so here's actual evidence. At the University of Rochester Medical Center, they partnered with the school district in the city of Rochester, uh, enrolled 400 kids in a trial, uh, three to 10 years, as you can see. And this was around asthma uh, management. And so randomized, most of the kids, or not most, half of the kids got what they call enhanced usual care. So it wasn't they were abandoned to, you know, there weren't regular check-ins. How are you doing? Do you feel like you need to come in? asthma under control. So enhanced usual care was compared to this supervised administration of preventive asthma medication in schools and three telemedicine visits, basically to assure uh, appropriate use, uh, appropriate prescriptions, check-ins with families, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what they found? The intervention group had significantly more symptom-free days, and they were obviously less likely to have any visits and hospitalizations. So actual proof of concept that this works. Um, clearly, in rural settings in particular, there would be huge applicability to this. Uh, the barriers that you can think of uh, are, lots of them are just the geographic distance and the transportation. Right? Do you actually have a car? Um, I know Ray Dorsey at the University of Rochester is a neurologist who has not set foot in a physical clinic in five years because he sees all of his Parkinson's patients remotely. 
Why? Because Parkinson's patients have a lot of difficulty getting new appointments. And they usually don't drive anymore, so it means some caregiver is taking a day off from work to get them to an appointment. And so the analysis they did was that to have a half-hour visit with a neurologist takes four hours of the patient's time and four hours of the caregiver's time. So that's a lot. So if you can do a, a reasonable assessment remotely, you might do that. Same thing would apply in many aspects of, of uh, telemedicine for pediatrics. And that this article, a very good article, about addressing health disparities in rural communities using telehealth basically posits that especially, bottom bullet, if you have regionalized pediatric subspecialty expertise um, at a place like this, right, and then built systems to get that expertise out to remote communities by, net, by supporting other providers in those communities, number one. And of course, a lot of that is already going on here at Dartmouth. And I think there are, what, six or seven service lines now where that is, is actually happening. Um, so if you could structure those kinds of systems, uh, and you don't just have to do provider to provider education, you could extend that into schools and childcare centers, et cetera. And we know we have the technology now that uh, enables that. So technology is not the barrier. Organizing the system is the key. And of course, organizing the payment model around that. About that, that um, we have proof of concept that using telemedicine and pediatrics in disasters works. Not huge, but uh, this article uh, recently published talks about what was going on in the case of Hurricane Irma in 2017 when the Moors, which has a children's hospital now down in Orlando, as well as the mothership in Delaware, basically did telehealth visits during the course of the hurricane. And, you know, again, you can imagine that some of it was pretty garden variety. Pediatric care, upper respiratory symptoms, skin-related concerns, etc. But they did it through the storm. Parent and patient satisfaction was high. Now they think we need to do more research to figure out how to build those systems to really respond to even more prolonged disasters. But since we know they're going to happen, especially with global warming and climate change, why would we not do this? Why would we not get ready? to provide more care that way in the event of disasters. Um, pediatric psychiatric care. Again, uh, this, this again is another American Well case study. Uh, so essentially they partnered with Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha to launch a telehealth psychiatry uh, program in pediatrics. Uh, and again, to, to your point, some of this is more challenging to do this remotely, no question about it. But they think there are offsetting factors. One of them is you, know, you, you basically get the care to the kid, and, and we know there's a huge uh, shortage uh, or maldistribution, certainly, of pediatric uh, psychiatric specialists around the country. So at least, you, at least you're getting them something. But then on top of that, they found that kids who have particular anxiety and other issues are much more comfortable staying at home and having a consultation than coming into a rather forbidding seeming medical center. So, you know, trade-offs. 
Yeah. I had a patient tell me that um, she had an easier time talking and, and sharing secrets and problems with the with the provider on the telemedicine than she did in person too because of the comfort, the comfort level. Yeah. The remoteness exactly. was easier to talk to. Yeah. Exactly. Well, even some of the some of the really sort of leading edge um, counseling issues that are, are counseling uh, programs and tele telepsychiatry and telemental health programs are using avatars, right? And people are more comfortable talking to an avatar sometimes than an actual human being, especially kids. So, you know, we'll see, right? We'll see. Um, I think there's every reason to try these things out and every reason to study them, right, and make sure that it's right. But it, it looks like uh, it could be a really important avenue for delivering care in new and different ways. So um, group telemedicine visits are another uh, phenomenon now for parents in particular. This was a study that was done at Children's Mercy in Kansas City where essentially they were tackling the problem that parents of kids with type 1 diabetes have this fear of hypoglycemia, in the, in, and they tend to overcompensate sometimes for that fear. Uh, they describe these, quote, maladaptive behaviors that parents will undergo. And so they said, we've got to figure out a way to manage this better, and we can't, it's not going to be efficient if we do one-on-one -on -one counseling with every set of parents of every patient with type 1. One diabetes, so how about we do this in group visits? So that's what they did. They basically set up a study, started to do these group telehealth visits with parents, and basically explained this is a common phenomenon, here's what you really need to understand. Uh, and essentially, they, just, they worked their way through. They did a series of, uh, as you can see, 43 families were involved. I think they did a series of maybe 12, 15 visits. About a fifth of the families dropped out after a couple. Maybe that was good. Maybe they said, okay, I get it, but I have knowledge these maladaptive behaviors. But of those who stayed, um, basically the rest of the parents came to most of the sessions or attended most of the sessions. And you can see almost a 90% satisfaction rate. So again, um, you know, how did they do the, you know, how did they fund that? Basically grant support to study it. There's no payment for that right now. But if you can, if, you, if it essentially improves the care of the, of the child and the family, why would you not do that? And why wouldn't a long-term goal be to structure a kind of a system that does, in effect, uh, pay for that? So then there's, of course, just classic clinic-based uh, pediatric uh, telehealth. And this is, uh, again, another American Well case study. American Well, um, again, is only one of those of providers, but I think they've done a particularly good job of understanding that they really need to have evidence to basically support what it is that they're selling. So they partnered with this very, very, very large practice in, in um, Florida, which is the largestly privately owned practice in the country, and essentially incorporated video visits into uh, care for existing patients. And they've done, they're basically now doing more than 3,000 of these a month. And you can see through this app, kids.now, uh, the kinds of things that they will do in the context of these visits. They have a huge Medicaid um, enrollment, and they found that this is extremely cost-effective for the Medicaid enrollment, and Medicaid order will pay for these visits. 
So uh, lack of payment has become a non-issue in that context. Uh, in particular, they took a group of families who were sort of, cla they cla classified them as the classic super utilizers, you know, families who were always showing up in the ED with their kids. And they essentially launched a pilot program just directed at them to basically put them together with this uh, Tido Care uh, family of tools, as you can see there, which, by the way, you can buy at Best Buy for $299. But Medicaid bought these for those families, and they gave them to them for free. And basically what it enables, the parents can actually conduct the examination with these tools on otoscope and other things, ears, throat, nose, et cetera. They could take the heart rate, and then it's basically transmitted directly to the clinicians. And essentially, what they were able to do with 145 patients and families in the program in the first four months, they reduced the ED usage by 60%. Now, obviously, the payment model rewarded that because it was beneficial for Medicaid to keep those patients out of the ED. Or uh, unnecessarily. So again, if you've got the right payment model that will support this, why would why would you not do it? Um, very uh, commonly now in parts of the country, particularly areas with vast distances or remote areas, you're getting more and more of this kind of telehealth. This is telehealth from near the adult intensive care unit at Intermountain Hospital in Salt Lake to the more remote Intermountain facilities. So they launched this program in 2012, and basically they got sort of a hub-and-spoke um, uh, relationship, set of relationships that they created, and now it's actually in four of their hub hospitals connected with 19 hospitals throughout the Rocky Mountain region. And essentially, this makes the NICU clinicians available through this virtual network to clinicians in these other hospitals. And essentially, what they've been able to do is reduce transfers into the mothership in Salt Lake or these other hub hospitals by about 30%. And that has saved the system $1.2 And by the system, what I mean here is that um, Intermountain has its own insurance company, Select Care. So there is a large group of patients who are not just treated by Intermountain providers, but they are insured by Select Care. So the system has an economic reason to reduce these unnecessary transfers. It's not that transfers are good because they bring more revenue into the system. It's transfers save money for the plan and therefore um, should be avoided if they can be. And obviously, patient, the parents would vastly prefer to have a child closer to home when possible, rather than having to essentially pick up and move to Salt Lake City during the duration of the time their child was in the NICU. And this was published in an article just recently in Health Affairs. So um, the world is changing, and for many years, uh, insurers were relatively reluctant to pay for telehealth. There was a belief that if you start paying for telehealth visits, that's all anybody will want to do with their time. People will just randomly want to have consultations with doctors all the time, and insurers will have to pay all those bills. So they resisted it. But, but that is changing. And as I understand, telehealth is now covered by, I guess it's sure. first, right, Catherine? Um, for private care, but now, for in the home, Medicaid in New Hampshire will 
for specialism in January for primary care. So another way that is changing is large self-insured employers who engage with insurers to administer their benefits for them increasingly believe that if they can support their employees and their families in telehealth visits, they will reach benefits. Their employees won't have to take a day off from work to go have a medical appointment. Uh, their employees won't go to the ED on the weekends because they can't get a doctor's appointment. They will actually be able to have a telehealth appointment instead. So they see the economic value. Therefore, when they are working with various insurers, they are increasingly saying, we will pay for telehealth for our enrollees. So United Healthcare now has created its app for its clients, its self-insured clients, that essentially patients can just get right on and have a uh, consultation with a practitioner uh, automatically. And usually what happens is this is connected with the uh, the, 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 the self-insured company will decide which who's in their network, and essentially United will build the app so that you're connected to a virtual uh, care uh, encounter with somebody in the network. Again, after hours, weekends particularly, but even uh, during the work week, if it can avoid a visit, again, employers see a benefit of that. Um, there is a um, lot of... Uh, interest now in organizing research networks to look at all of this. And one is this supporting pediatric research on outcomes and utilization of telehealth network that has been created, Sprout. And there was a write-up about this in pediatrics uh, last year, as you can see. And they basically trying to gather as much information as possible to understand what is going on. And everything from, you know, what equipment are people using see some of it is done over Wi-Fi, some of it is cellular. As we go into the next iteration of cellular technology, 5G technology, it's going to basically supplant broad, internet broadband for many people. So doing this increasingly over a phone will be effective, and 5G will eventually come to the upper valley. <laughs> <with that. laughs> so, yes. I'm wondering whether some of the research is um, is not well um, conceived because the research is comparing um, telehealth to our current practice structure. And our current practice structure is, is broken in so many, so many ways. How about if the research would compare telehealth to a system where adequate healthcare workers are distributed in the areas where they are needed? Um, um, right now, there's so many disincentives to primary care doctors practicing in rural areas and in underserved urban areas. Community health workers are underfunded. Um, and, you know, there, there's been this grab, which I apologize, I think is a bit of a power grab by the academic health centers, to take some of the successes of telehealth. Project ECHO showed that community doctors could take better care of hep C patients with the tele-advice of one hepatologist in Albuquerque. Absolutely. It did not say that the, tele that the hepatologist in, in Albuquerque should take care of all people with hepatitis C. Absolutely. Um, and yet we're turning that model into one of concentrating the care in the academic health centers rather than putting the workers out into rural areas 
where they can get the subspecialty support that they need via telehealth from the academic health centers. And I think that the research that we're doing is <clears throat> incrementally, step by step, taking money away from the more basic um, workforce needs of, of health care, both primary care and specialty care. And, and this scares the hell out of me. Well, as, I, I, as, a, I, as a medical I, educator. Yeah, I, I, I certainly understand your concerns. I don't think that that's true. I think that everybody who gets involved in this space knows there's plenty of care to go around, right? And that we're just not meeting needs, particularly if you look at areas like mental health. There's, nobody could argue anywhere close to meeting the needs, and nor are we going to, nor would we. You know, it's not likely we're going to create enough pediatric mental health specialists distributed adequately around the country in our lifetimes, right? It's just not going to happen. So thinking how to, how to sometimes it, would, it could be direct care provision from an academic medical center, but more often than not, it's also support to community-level providers. Right, although most of the examples that you gave were direct care provision. And not and not support, and I, I'm also a little bit worried that that from your early slide um, is a bit of a of a diversion. And you're talking about 40% being the social determinants of health. This intervention is still dealing only with the 10% of clinical care, um, and we have to recognize that this is not addressing those other concerns. But it's by using words like community and rural, it's creating the impression that this is addressing the more basic social problems that that result in bad health outcomes. Well, that, that could be, but it's why, please let me get to the rest of my presentation where I talk about how we need to build systems. I didn't know when to raise my hands. <laughs> no, but that's a very important point. And we know we're not going to lick this by leaving it all in the healthcare sector. So how we build these systems uh, and I guess just to go back to the point about uh, what these examples show, you know, people, right now, people are trying stuff out, right? And there isn't a lot of payment model for this, so a lot of this stuff gets done grant, in a grant-funded way. What I think it tells us, though, is that we have proof of concept that these things work. And now it's up to all of us to figure out how to build this in a way that will work more broadly. And that includes payment models that support it. And includes payment models that support, the, you know, it's not going to be the case that all of this care can be sucked up into academic medical centers. We know that. So how do we create the system that has the balance across these different modalities, right? The, the, the education to local providers, uh, the referrals when those are appropriate, et cetera, et cetera, right? But the point is, the technology opens up all kinds of new ways to do that. And now it's on us to figure out how to really make this, build a system that works for patients as well as for, it's got to work economically for institutions, right? Uh, as well as for providers. So, um, and this just makes the point, at the moment, you can see how are these programs being funded. This is, again, through the Sprout Network. You can see right now, most of this is being funded by institutional direct investment, right? Um, because payment isn't there. Um, 
sometimes there's industry grant or state grants. A meaningful share of it is right now still being funded out of philanthropy. Fee-for-service billing is beginning to pick up, uh, but payment model is still evolving, and it needs to evolve further. And it should evolve, I think, in, in a more holistic context, because as we know, the other part of the story is we're moving from fee-for-service to value-based payment, uh, slowly but surely as a country. So thinking about how we build the payment systems that really support all of this is, is critically important, and, and that includes the other non-clinical activities in the community to support health. Um, you can see what the, they found about a lot of the barriers to organizations doing this in the first place. State regulation is still an issue with respect to licensure. There are still some states in the country where you can't even do telehealth within the state for various reasons. Uh, and then there are two state licensure issues that uh, come in. You can see there is some resistance, some patient preference for in-person care. That's still a factor. But you can see the biggest single factor is reimbursement, right? It's the payment model that doesn't yet fully support that. So and these are, seem to be common issues across programs. And then barriers to startup or growth, again, reimbursement is still the big one, but lots of things along the way. Contracting problems, you know, how are you going to split up the money is going to be an issue among uh, if you've got, and I don't know how Dartmouth has actually done it with respect to the other hospitals that it's doing uh, uh, care across these various service lines now, but I'm sure there was some agreement to figure out how they're going to split up the payment, right? That's just realistic, but those, you know, anybody who's been involved in any contracting relationship healthcare knows that doesn't happen overnight either. So lots of issues that still have to be worked through. I think that we have to see all of this against this broader background of health system transformation, which, as I said, we know is underway. Um, some of it is, is that other organizations are getting into this, right? Um, the tech sector has decided that healthcare is a very fertile ground for disruption. So you have lots of standalone telehealth services now starting up, right? And they're not going to wait for academic health centers necessarily to um, say, you know, sure, come in and take over our territory. They're just going to do it. Uh, so we know that that's going on. We know that there are lots of combinations going on in the broader world between providers and payers getting together in various new ways. United Health Group is now uh, through its Optum unit, one of the larger providers of primary care in the nation by virtue of having bought a couple of health systems, healthcare partners, the Everett Clinic, a uh, big practice group in Southern California called Monarch, et cetera, et cetera. They're not going to stop doing that. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas opened up 10 advanced primary care clinics. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So these lines between insurers and provider systems are blurring. What's the import of that? The import of that is that as they put these pieces together, just as the case with Intermountain having its own insurer, it's not just all about volume anymore and financial survival. It's about efficient use of resources because they're paying the bills at the same time they're providing 
So they are going to look for ways to provide care as efficiently as possible. And if some of that is telehealth, so be it. That's the import of this transformation. And so we have things like the combination of CVS Health and Aetna. And you can see what Larry Merlo, the CEO, says about what their goal is. Reinvent healthcare's front door. Reinvent it. So basically, and transform the consumer experience and build healthier communities through a new innovative care model. What does that mean? So they've got Aetna, their insurer, now to build this new payment model that could basically include, and, and CBS is building now eight prototype new facilities. It's not going to look anything like the old CBS, but the new CBS, which is essentially a combination of a walk-in clinic or minute clinic, um, consultations with pharmacists, but also nurse practitioners, telehealth into consumers' homes, um, telehealth connections in minute clinic to specialists, um, so that there, so that the clinic becomes a kind of a triage point for patients. Yes. This is our two-minute warning. I think this is okay. the burning platform okay. that that can amazing. open the last two minutes to last observations. I'll let George. You said it that nicely. I'll let George. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's been great. Seen and heard you all over the place and all that sort of thing. So. Can I make an observation and push you a little bit for an answer? Please. Uh, right up until the last three or four minutes, I was wondering when we're going to get to this issue. I look at that, and I see a repeat of Big Pharma. I see the same process happening. There are incentives that are uh, money-based. Uh, I was going to ask you earlier about whether you thought we were on the right track with regard to what the incentives are, whether they're evidence-based of good outcomes and satisfaction or evidence-based of this. This really bothers me, this last slide, because I see this big pharma, again, deja vu all over again. Uh, there's no control, uh, regulation, guidance, whatever the hell you want to call it, that allows us to get away from the fact that Big Pharma repeats itself. Wait, tell me, tell me your tell reaction. Me more about your tell tell me your reaction. Tell me more about the pharma connection. Yeah. Here at the U. I'm sorry. Tell me more about the pharma. I think pharma. Connection. You know, we see it in the political arena. The big pharma aspect of it is it's it's a it's an area where much of our resources are being centralized for good reason. I mean, the research and it has to occur, you know, and so forth. But basically, we're dealing with the problem of people can't afford their medicines because the system that we have is not based at distribution and values and outcome, it's based at money and, and, and stock returns. Or maybe that's too much of it, it's not only based on that. I see this as big pharma all over again. Well, we'll see, right? I mean, we live, we live in a capitalist economy, right? And here's a, here's a you know, I, I think something like 95% of the country lives within 10 miles of a CVS, right? How much of the country lives within 10 miles of a sophisticated pediatric practice, right? So, and they know, you know, 
So part of the reason the impetus for CVS to merge with Aetna came about was Amazon going into pharmacy. And as you know, Amazon bought PillPack. They got 50 pharmacy licenses in 50 states. They are going heavily into pharmacy delivery. So CVS looked at that and said, game's over, <laughs> right? Game's over for us because that was the last commodity that Amazon was not delivering. So they're reinventing themselves. And how are they reinventing themselves? They're, they're going to take the presence of the stores and turn it into something of value for them. And they believe the community. And they say they want to partner with everybody else in the healthcare system. They don't want to be Dr. Hitchcock. They don't, right? They're not going to be that. They're going to still have nurse practitioners and pharmacists, but they will be the triage point. And they're going to build this payment model around it. And of all the health insurers, you know, the one who probably can most defensively say, we are building our model to deal with enabling people to attack social determinants of health, Aetna probably comes closest to, to that. So we'll see, right? And, you know, it's, it's our job as citizens to hold them accountable. So last time I saw Susan give this talk, she had two hours with the graduating <laughs> medical class, didn't get to her slide tech. The challenge is to reinvent ourselves. Uh, I think the opportunity is now, Susan, come back for part two at some point in the future. And those who want to come down and chat with her, I imagine, can do so. Yes, so, absolutely. And again, for